Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Jeff Bezos will fly to suborbital space on his new Shepard capsule, built by his space exploration company, Blue Origin. This past weekend, Richard Branson flew to the edge of space on one of his Virgin Galactic space planes. Welcome to space. To all you kids down there, I was once a child with a dream, looking up to the stars. Now I'm an adult in a spaceship with lots of other wonderful adults looking down to our beautiful, beautiful Earth. These two moments reflect a culmination of years of work from the two private companies and others like Elon Musk's SpaceX to grow the commercial spaceflight industry. For decades, though, exploring the universe has been a government-led effort. Now it is time to take longer strides. Time for a great new American enterprise. Time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. Today, with billionaires funding space exploration initiatives, that balance is shifting. There are American heroes. Neil Armstrong, Gene Cernan have both testified against commercial spaceflight and the way that you're developing it. And I wonder what you think of that. I was very sad to see that. You know, those guys are heroes of mine, so it's really tough. The relationship between private space industry ventures and government-supported initiatives is intertwined and evolving, but it presents questions about how an administration should approach exploration of the final frontier. So how does NASA fit in while billionaires fly to space? What are Biden's plans for the space agency, and how much of Trump's initiatives does he plan to continue? And why does this matter? Why should the government still invest in space exploration at all? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Before we get to the interview, I want to note here that Jeff Bezos, the founder of Blue Origin, also owns The Washington Post. Now, Christian Davenport is a reporter for The Post who covers possibly the most fun beat we have, NASA and the space industry. He's also the author of The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos. I started by asking him if private spaceflight is a new phenomenon. Well, it's been in development for some years now. People forget that because it's getting so much attention now that actually Jeff Bezos founded Blue Origin in 2000 and Elon Musk founded SpaceX in 2002 and Richard Branson with Virgin Galactic in 2004. So this has been in develop for a number of years and a lot of these efforts are sort of just now coming to fruition, but this has been a dream for some time now. Is it coincidence that this all is happening at the same time, or has this been like gradual evolution and the timeline looked the same from the start? There has been a gradual evolution, and 
in a lot of ways, it's been led by SpaceX, which, you know, it leads the sort of privatization of space. When you talk about commercial space, you think about SpaceX. They've been out in front. Elon founded the company in 2002, and within six years, they had a rocket that was able to go to orbit, and they started quickly entering sort of the launch market, winning contracts from NASA, and then eventually the Pentagon. And he showed that you could actually do this and have a viable company. This relationship between SpaceX and NASA has been sufficiently meaningful to where we, we are now looking at, at how we do all of our business models. And that includes how we're going to resupply the gateway. Um, it includes how we're going to get to the surface of the moon. This business Now you're seeing not just these launch providers, but a broader space industry beginning to blossom. So you mentioned Blue Origin, SpaceX, and Virgin Galactic. Do all of these private companies have similar goals? Is it just space tourism? What are they in this for? In a lot of ways, they have different approaches. But what they all have in common is wanting to make space more accessible. There's such a high bar to be able to get to space. It's technically very challenging. It's risky. I mean, there's a reason why governments have had a monopoly on space travel for decades. It's just too difficult. And so what they all want to do is bring down the cost and commercialize it and open it up to far more people and to make space more accessible. How they do that, the approaches they're taking very widely. They've got different vehicles, different visions for their company and ultimately what they want to do in the long term. But they all share that theme in common for sure. And do they all work in some capacity with the government? Is that sort of a prerequisite to being able to have a space program? To some respect, they do. And that I think while the goal is to have a freestanding commercial space industry that's self-sustaining, we're not there yet. And the government, in a lot of ways, is very much the big driving force and a big customer still for a lot of these companies. So SpaceX, for example, has contracts from NASA to fly cargo and supplies to the space station, to even fly astronauts to the space station. So does Boeing. Boeing has a contract to fly astronauts to the space station. That sort of subsidizes their programs, and that means a great deal to them. Blue Origin's trying to win some of those contracts and has had some recent success. And even Virgin Galactic, which is looking more toward the commercial market and flying paying customers on these suborbital space tourism flights, also will fly science experiments and work with NASA to be able to do that. So to some extent, the government is still involved in these public-private partnerships. It seems like, to me, the dynamics of these public-private partnerships have sort of changed over the past few years, at least from an outsider's perspective. It seems like now private space travel has gained momentum and some of the more scientific or more experimental stuff, things to help us learn more about outer space, have at least sort of fallen to the wayside in terms of attention. Can you explain why that's happening or if that is even happening as I perceive it? Yeah, that's a great observation because there has been a shift in the paradigm. We've seen some dramatic changes. Take NASA, for example. Ten years ago, they were looking at this commercial industry and a lot of people within NASA and the leadership was very skeptical of it. And it was really controversial when NASA contracted out this service to fly cargo and supplies to the International Space Station. A lot of people thought, no, this is what the government should be doing. We shouldn't be ceding this to the private sector and certainly not ceding human spaceflight. I mean, flying NASA's most precious resource, its astronauts, to the space station, it was inconceivable that they were going to allow that to be turned over to the private sector. And then they did. Although I strongly do support the goals and ideals of commercial access to space, the folks who propose such a limited architecture do not yet know 
what they don't know. There is a myriad of technical challenges in their future yet to be overcome, safety considerations which cannot be overlooked or compromised, as well as a business plan and investors they will have to satisfy. All this will lead to unplanned delays, which will cost the American taxpayer billions of unallocated dollars and lengthen the gap from shuttle retirement to, day we can, to the day we can once again access low Earth orbit, leaving us hostage as a nation. And the private sector, SpaceX, has showed that they can do it and do it successfully. And so to your other point, like that got a lot of attention because companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin, they're led by these sort of celebrity billionaires, and they do get a lot of attention. Elon Musk, in particular, his goal was to create more attention for space and space travel to give NASA and the other agencies more money so that we could do more things. I mean, we went to the moon in 1969 and haven't been back since. And a lot of people thought that NASA really lost its mojo. And I can see that argument, but I would also point out, for example, that it was NASA that sent a probe to, you know, an asteroid some 200 million miles away. It was NASA that most recently landed the Curiosity rover on the surface of Mars. And oh, by the way, flew a helicopter ingenuity on Mars. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. NASA's still doing some big, daring, good things, but now they've got these commercial partners that can help them along the way. And a lot of people think it's the marriage between those two entities, this growing commercial space sector, along with the big government bureaucracy, which has the backing of the US government. And that's how you really go do big things like going to Mars and back to the moon. Is there another American industry that works that way? Well, I think a lot of people look at what's happening in the early days of this sort of commercial space flight, and they look back to the early days of commercial aviation, where this was a technology that was in large part fueled by the government, by World War I, for example, and needing jet planes to fight in that war. And then after the war, the Postal Service using aviation and then going to a commercial paradigm. And then where first flying on an airplane was very expensive and then the costs come down and people look at these space tourism flights and they're very expensive, but the hope is that the cost will come down. It's an imperfect metaphor because in commercial aviation, you had the Wright brothers fly the first powered flight in 1903. And by about 1955, more people in the United States were flying by airplane and commercial aviation than taking the railroad for the first time. So you have this massive shift in commercial aviation. We haven't seen that in space. I mean, space is harder, it's more difficult, but a lot of people think and hope that we're headed that way. The difference, I think, is that you have a destination when you take an airplane, you have a destination in aviation. But with the space tourism, at least what we've seen from Virgin Galactic so far, for example, you start and end in the same spot. Right, exactly. But so let's take that for a minute. So what Virgin Galactic wants to do is perfect that, get better, be able to fly more people, higher, faster, more efficiently, more robustly, and bring the cost down. And then instead of taking off like Richard Branson just did at Spaceport America and landing back at Spaceport America, you take off at Spaceport America and land in Tokyo. Technologically, they're not there yet. There's going to be a lot of bureaucratic regulations in terms of managing the airspace, and that's going to involve different countries. Uh, but SpaceX wants to do that as well. I mean, they say, if you're going to go to space, why do you have to come down in the same spot? Why not land someplace else? And that's clearly destinations for Earth. But if we have commercial space stations 
in low Earth orbit to complement or replace the International Space Station, that's a destination. Or if now you're thinking out decades, hundreds of years, and you have destinations around the moon, that could be a, a place to go as well. That's wild. Let's pivot to talk a little bit about the politics surrounding this and what the federal government has been doing in the past and, and is doing now to aid these space efforts. So President Trump actually appeared to show a big interest in space when he was in office. He put Space Force in place. Did that interest lead to any substantive advances in American space research? So with the Trump administration standing up the Space Force and on the civilian side with NASA, what they did was create the Artemis program. And the Artemis program is their program to go back to the moon. Originally, NASA had been aiming to go back to the moon in about the 2028 timeframe. The Trump administration said, no, that's too long. This time, we will not only plant our flag and leave our footprint, we will establish a foundation for an eventual mission to Mars and perhaps someday to many worlds beyond. This directive will and the problem space with space and politics is that one administration will come in and say, we're going to the moon, and then they'll get voted out, and the new administration will come in and say, no, we've been to the moon, we're going to Mars. And then the next one comes and says, no, we're going back to the moon. And as a result, we've gone nowhere, and we haven't been back to the moon. So Trump came in and very strongly said, we're going to the moon under Artemis by 2024. And what happened when the Biden administration came in, even though they laid waste to so many of President Trump's programs, they embraced Artemis. Um, through the Artemis program, the United States government will work with industry and international partners to send astronauts to the surface of the moon, another man and a woman to the moon, which is very exciting. Uh, they said, we're going to do this. We're going to take a review. We're going to look at it, make sure this is viable. But they're holding on to that program and the 2024 deadline. So we have continuity like this for the first time in a long time. And that's giving a lot of people in the space community a lot of hope. I think 2024 is still an unlikely deadline. I don't know that we're going to be able to meet that. There are a lot of challenges yet, but at least everybody is aligned to meet that goal. Are there other goals from the Biden administration around the space program? Well, what's fascinating about it is that they are continuing a lot of what happened in previous administrations. These public-private partnerships to fly commercially, they're embracing that. That was once, not that long ago, really controversial. And we went from flying cargo and humans to low Earth orbit, to the International Space Station. And initially there was all this talk of, oh, that would free NASA to go farther and deeper and do things. But now under the Artemis program, for example, they're continuing to embrace these public-private partnerships to go to the moon. For example, the lunar lander that would put astronauts on the surface of the moon, that would be a public-private partnership. Right now, SpaceX has the contract to develop that spacecraft, even though at the moment it's touched off a protest and litigation from Blue Origin, which lost the bid and also wants to be able to compete for it. So not only do you have these public-private partnerships going forward, but you've even got immense competition in the industry for it. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now.
So to head NASA, Biden tapped former Florida Senator Bill Nelson, who was the second sitting member of Congress to go to space. You had a chance to sit down with Nelson. What did he tell you were his priorities for Biden's NASA? Well, a lot of people look at the NASA administrator and say, oh, it should be an engineer or a scientist or maybe an astronaut and not a politician. Politics should be left out of it. But what they bring to the table is the ability to go back to their former members of Congress to try to get money to fund these programs. And that's what former Senator Nelson is trying to do right now. Going back to the moon is not cheap. They had requested $3.3 billion for that lunar lander program, only got $850 million for this year. And so now he's going back to the Hill with these budget requests to try to get more money so they can meet that 2024 deadline. I want to ask you the most basic question here, which is there are so many problems in this world, so many areas in this country alone that need lots of congressional funding. Why is going back to the moon a priority? Why is this important? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think that as journalists, it's something we need to keep asking ourselves and keep asking the leaders about what is the point of all this? And is there a return? I mean, we went to the moon in 1969 and haven't really been back since 1972. And why should we do this? And I think what NASA would tell you today is that particularly when it comes to the moon, they're not talking about an Apollo-like program where 12 men walked on the moon and then came home, and that was it. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. They want to build a more permanent presence on and around the moon, a base on the surface of the moon and a space station in orbit around the moon. And what we know now that we didn't know during Apollo is that there is water in the form of ice on the poles of the moon. And that's important not just to sustain human life, but water, hydrogen, oxygen can be used as a rocket fuel and propellant to allow us to go further. I mean, it's, you think of the moon as like a gas station in space, and that allows you to go further while at the same time helping to build the sort of commercial space industry. And a lot of people think that space, if we can access it more efficiently and more cheaply, then that could actually open up a new economic sphere, not unlike what we saw with the advent of the internet. At this point, what are these advancements in space? What value do they have from a geopolitical perspective for our country? Well, that's another great question. So just think about the partnerships on the International Space Station, where you've got, I think it's something like 19 countries working together. I mean, it's an enormous amount of work to keep astronauts alive in space. And on the ground, there are all sorts of enormous geopolitical tensions between the United States and Russia, for example. But when it comes to space and partnering on the International Space Station, they work in lockstep with each other. At the same time, you're seeing a growing space race. I mean, there's some debate over this between the United States and China. China has shown that they have huge ambitions in space. They landed a spacecraft on the far side of the moon, which no one had ever done. They just landed a rover on Mars, joining the United States to be able to do that. They launched their own space station into low Earth orbit and are talking about partnering not only with Russia, but with other countries as well at a time when the International Space Station, which is an endeavor, an effort led by the United States, is getting older, and it's unclear how much longer that will stay up there. China has shown that it has huge space ambitions 
and NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has talked about one of the reasons why we need to keep exploring is, you know, to make sure there's democratic American values that extend into space. All right, Christian, my last question for you. You have been closely following this modern space race. What do you think will be the next phase for space exploration? And is the U.S. positioned to be a leader? I think the next chapter is you go from Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, space shuttle, space station to this commercial space era. I'm really interested in human spaceflight, and it's fascinating to me that you've got not just like a Jeff Bezos and a Richard Branson going up, but that soon you could have a lot more people. And if you think about it in the history of the world, only about 570 people have ever been to space. And if within a five year, say they're able to do it safely and reliably, that number grows to 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 over the years, and you have you know, a new generation of people who have seen the Earth from a distance, who have seen the thin line of the atmosphere, land masses without borders, that could have a profound effect. I mean, remember that image taken from the Apollo era of the Earth, the pale blue dot hanging in that inky darkness of space. That helped touch off the environmental movement in Earth Day, and it's one of the most reproduced photos in the history of photography. So I think that could have a profound societal effect, and we're starting to see this with SpaceX and a company called Axiom Space taking more and more people, not just on suborbital space tourism trips, but all the way to orbit as well. So I think that is something to look for, for sure. I'm convinced you have the coolest job at the Washington Post. Christian, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. And yes, I do. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Arjun Singh with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 